Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're discussing the weird fiction author Robert W. Chambers and his most famous creation, The King in Yellow. Before we get into all that, though, we have some news. Well, we're starting off with some rather sad news, the death of Larry Dottilio, who will be known to Call of Cthulhu fans as the original author of Masks of Nalathotep. Yeah, he had a, a pretty large career outside RPG writing, uh, mainly in television. Uh, he worked on Babylon 5, He-Man. Beasts. Uh, yeah. Uh, the real Ghostbusters for that classic episode, The Collect Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, so, yeah, he, he, he was a prolific writer, a, a very successful one. But for the purposes of, of our show, he was the man who created Jackson Elias. Well, oh, well, indeed, yes, that hadn't occurred to me, but uh, indeed. Well, anyway, our condolences to anyone who knew him, his friends, his family, and everyone. I was about to say on another brighter note, but for me, curses, it's a sad note. Padthulu, especially if you've seen some of the images uh, created by our good friend Evan Dorkin for the front cover of the last issue of the Blasphemous Tome. Padthulu is a wonderful crossover between Paddington Bear and Cthulhu, complete with all tentacles and a little briefcase and tag that says, please look after this thing. He was rendered into sculpture by our other good friend, David Kirkby. Yeah, he went on auction on, on eBay and quickly surpassed my budget. <laughs> Yeah, and made up, we say, a whopping £186. Yeah, which is all going to Cancer Research UK. Well, thank you very much to everyone who bid on that and drove the price up. Thank you very much to David Kirkby for sculpting such an adorable little abomination. And thank you to Evan Dawkin for creating the thing in the first place. He was so cute. He was. Now, John Hook has published a new Call of Cthulhu mini-supplement via the Miskatonic University repository, which you can find on DriveThruRPG, and it's called Visceral and Emotional Damage, and it offers tables and rules and advice for making wounds more horrifying. John was inspired, well, inspired by one of our shows, uh, our discussion of violence in Call of Cthulhu way back in episode 143. He has kindly offered a download of the product to all our Patreon backers for free. So if you're a Patreon backer, keep an eye on your inbox. And now on to our main topic, Robert W. Chambers and The King in Yellow. So this is going to be the first of a series of episodes that explore The King in Yellow in different aspects. We're going to start off by talking about Robert W. Chambers, his book, The King in Yellow. Then we'll delve into the elements of what built up into the Carcosa mythos. And from there, we'll look specifically at one of his stories, The Yellow Sign. And finally, we'll look at how all this fits into the Cthulhu mythos, because we've done this in a couple of other episodes, looking at how certain key elements of the Cthulhu mythos got started and what they've become and what the differences between them are. But I don't think that there's an example that's more stark than, than this, where what we consider as part of the, you know, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is so very different from what it started out with. I think it's arguable, but yeah. Certainly, you know, perhaps at Latch Nature, which we you know, may discuss in a no, future No, I meant episode. how different the King in Yellow is to what's in Call of Cthulhu. 
but we'll come to we'll yeah. come to this. We'll come to this. Yes, well, we will devote a whole episode to that, but, think, but not yet. I think we're also quite surprised just how much material there is for this as well. This is a theme that has been expanded upon by a great many writers, and we'll dig into some of that later in this episode. But it started out with comparatively modest beginnings. It's surprising how much people have made out of so little. Now, given that there is a fair argument to be made that there's a separation between the original Chambers material and then things that are followed later, such as in the RPG, we're going to be using two terms coined by The Yellow Site. It's a website out there, a very very interesting one, actually. It's the one that I could get lost in for a long, long time when I started digging into it. We're going to use the term the Carcosa Mythos to describe the mythology that was accreted around Chambers' original work, and the Hasta Mythos for the branch of the Cthulhu Mythos that took this in a different direction. Now let's begin with a look at Robert W. Chambers, the man. Robert, and that W stands for William, Chambers, was born in Brooklyn, New York, on the 26th of May, 1865. Um, he studied art between 1886 and 1893, first in Manhattan and then in Paris. You can see how that's going to inform his work a bit later on. Uh, this work was exhibited at the Salon in 1889, and after returning to New York, Chambers worked as a commercial artist providing illustrations for Vogue and Life. Now, even though I don't read magazines, I recognise those names. <laughs> Apparently, Life was a very different magazine in those days. I think it was a previous magazine with the same name, and not related to the Life magazine that we, we know from the 20th century. Oh. But, uh, I mean, you've done a, a bit of research into that period for uh, when you did A Message of Art. Yes. yes. Um, so I mean, how, how big a deal was it for an artist at the time to have their work exhibited at the Salon? Well, there were several. Um, to be honest, I'm not actually sure which one he's referring to which just says The Salon, because I know there were a few that took the term Salon, like the Salon de la Rose Quack that I used in Message of Art. So I don't think there was one definitive one. I think there were numerous satellite ones as well. So it depend, really depends on which one he's referring to. But yeah, otherwise, though, they were big shows. They were a big spectacle set piece in Paris when they were on. So it it would have been certainly a big deal. So it's perhaps quite significant then that Chambers seemed to abandon art as a career fairly early on. Around the same time, Chambers started writing. His first novel, In the Quarter, was published 1894. And this drew upon his experiences of living in the Latin Quarter in Paris. It was possibly inspired by the success of Henri Merger's La Vie de Bohème, the source of Puccini's opera La Bohème. Um, Most of us know it more recently, Rent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. That inspired Rent. Yes, yes. Because I was interested to see that, like, The King in Yellow is written the year after that, 1895. So it's like it's only his second book that he puts out. Yeah. Uh, And he's a prolific author. I was surprised to sort of see that it was just like. His early work, really. Although, from from what I've heard of In the Quarter, it wasn't anywhere near as successful as The King in Yellow. Right. Um, It was pretty much put out there, but it was a first novel. It didn't get much widespread recognition at the time. It may have got some later after Chambers became a big name, but, yeah, to begin with, it was not a bang, here's a big entry onto the scene. It was more just a, here's a book. No, The King in Yellow was his big breakthrough book. Yeah. I mean, it was so successful that it pretty much established his career as a writer. I've read a number of essays from different sources, and I get the impression 
that Chambers was a man who was very much driven by commercial aspirations. And perhaps, I mean, that's why he abandoned art at this stage, or, or at least focused more on the writing, that this was what the public wanted from him. And he was incredibly prolific. I mean, he wrote 87 books in total, according to Joshi. I mean, this includes novels, short story collections, uh, collections of poetry, books on nature, and apparently even a libretto for an opera. Again, a note from a... Actually, a documentary which was on the DVD for The Yellow Sign that was done by um, Lurker Films a few years back. There's a very short piece on there that goes over Chambers' time in Paris and his writing and how it evolved over time. So that apart from a handful of weird tales and a couple of collections that he put out, his vast output was pretty much dictated by the taste of the time yeah. because he wanted to make money, unsurprisingly. And he did ind- indeed die a very well-known author and a very rich man. Well, I wonder how rich was he to begin with? Because in one uh, note I read, he talks about having, you know, working at home, but then he's kind of got another office. Oh, yeah, his his secret office that yeah. he didn't tell anyone the address so, to. Yeah. Is he quite a wealthy person from the beginning? You know, he's had enough money to go over to France and study and so on. It wasn't like you'd get a government grant or something to do that, I don't think. Yeah, from what I, I remember uh, reading in, in biographical essays, his uh, father, I think, was quite a successful lawyer. So not necessarily you know, an aristocratic family or anything like that, but you know, certainly upper middle class. Hmm. In fact, only a few of his short story collections and one novel included any weird elements at all, and none of them ever revisited the Carcosa mythos, which, a bit of a shame, I thought, if it was that successful, he would have again thought of the money and cashed in on a sequel, but no. no. Uh, highlights include The Maker of Moons from 1896, The Mystery of Choice from 1897, and In Search of the Unknown from 1904, which has a nice subnote with it that it contains The Harbour Master. A tale about an amphibious humanoid often cited as an inspiration for the shadow over Innsmouth. Now, a lot of the stories in these collections are not weird fiction, and some of the weird fiction ones are borderline romances. So a lot of what Chambers became known for later in life was romantic fiction. I mean, he wrote some war stories, adventure stories, stuff like that, and you know, even a bit of science fiction. But... He was pretty much a household name in Lovecraft's time as a writer of romances. So much so that there was some correspondence between Derleth and Lovecraft, where Lovecraft was expressing surprise when he encountered The King and Yellow in 1927 that Robert W. Chambers, of all people, wrote this book. Because this would be, I, I don't know, like, you know, discovering that Stephanie Meyer or, or E.L. Grey or someone like that wrote one of the great foundational pieces of weird fiction. So perhaps no surprise that he didn't then come back to the whole Carcosa thing because there were lots of romance novels that were making him lots of money. Mm-hmm. And his, maybe his interest had moved on as well. So, But, I mean, it's, it's interesting how little of that massively popular stuff that people remember now. His books sold in the hundreds of thousands at the time. I, he had a number of books which I don't think necessarily topped the bestseller lists but certainly made the bestseller lists in the U.S., and, as I said, there were an awful lot of them. But, I mean, these days, there are a handful that are in print in any kind, or at least, you know, outside of print-on-demand services or places like Project Gutenberg. And it's only really his weird fiction that survives in the public consciousness these days, which was such a minor part of his output. I found one edition of The King in Yellow that I would really like, but it's going to have to wait a little while. What's that, Matt? Eastern Press did a leather-bound copy Um, a few Uh, years back and I love the quality of their books but yeah they are not cheap (laughs) 
Chambers' various interests shaped his works. Many involve artists, usually in Paris or Brittany. His characters are often outdoorsmen, especially hunters, fishermen and butterfly collectors. Yeah, I mean, it felt like when I was reading things like The Maker of Moons and The Mystery of Choice, there was a lot of formula to these things. The protagonist was almost always an American in France, usually an artist with a love of the outdoors, going out and doing fishing or something like that, and encountering some mysterious French woman, usually in her teens, falling in love with her instantly, and and this romance set against a sometimes weird backdrop. And that, I think, probably encapsulates about half of the Chambers fiction I've read. And definitely one in The King in Yellow. Oh, more than one. (laughs) I'd say Demoiselle Deist more than more than any other, at least of the core four or five stories at the beginning of the collection. Yes, out of the weird ones, but I mean, you know, a lot of the later ones are romances as well. Mm-hmm. There were exceptions to this in you know, some of his collections of short stories. In The Mystery of Choice in particular, and there are a few stories which, you know, while they aren't part of the Carcosa mythos, some of them do have a similar kind of gloomy and macabre tone to, say, The Yellow Sign, particularly uh, Pompe Funèbre, The Messenger and Passeur. So if you are a fan of The King in Yellow, it might be worth checking out those stories. I, I wouldn't necessarily run out and make a point of it, but yeah, they might be inspirational. Chambers died on the 16th of December 1933, following intestinal surgery. <laughs> Yeah, that's a horrible way. Yeah, to go. apparently he had cancer, and they didn't do a very good job of trying to fix it. In Wikipedia lists twenty-one film adaptations of Chambers' work, almost all before nineteen fifty-four. Now, there's one thing I didn't know. Wow, yeah. he had a lot of film output. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I mean, he really was massively popular. But I mean, this is the interesting thing that he went from being amazingly popular. Up to, you know, sometime after his death, you know, certainly in terms of the influence he had on filmmakers and so on, to, apart from The King in Yellow, being pretty well forgotten in the modern day, or within the, the space of, what, 50 years? Oh, in fact, mm. it wasn't even that. I read the introduction to one of the stories in the anthology that Lynn Carter edited called The Spawn of Cthulhu. And he collects a, a number of the stories that both influenced Lovecraft and that Lovecraft had an influence on there. And he talks a little bit about Chambers in the introduction to, I think it's The Yellow Sign. And this anthology was put together in 1971. And even then, he talks about Chambers being a forgotten figure. So that's in the 17 years between the last major film adaptation of his work and that book coming out, that he just almost completely dropped out of the public consciousness. At that stage, people were rediscovering The King in Yellow. So do we think that Chambers would be remembered today if it weren't for The King in Yellow? Probably not, putting it bluntly. Because <laughs> I think if you asked most people who Robert W. Chambers was, or can you name one book of his that will come up, that will be the only title that will be mentioned. Yeah, it very much exists within the penumbra of Lovecraftian fiction. I, I think a lot of people these days consider him to be a Lovecraftian writer, even though his weird fiction predates Lovecraft. We'll touch on one of the other reasons why he's remembered a bit later, which is the use of, of some of his work in, in True Detective. But, I mean, apart from that, I think he really is very much a forgotten figure. I mean, considering the volume of his output and the popularity at the time, he just disappeared. I mean, a bit like Lord Dunstan, he's also considered you know, one of the Lovecraft circle, although the stuff that Lovecraft took from Dunstan was written around the same time or before Lovecraft was writing. And I think Dunstany was a 
pretty popular figure in his day mm. as well. But I mean, who's heard of him nowadays outside of Lovecraft fans? I, I think Dunsany does have a bit more popularity outside of the Lovecraft circles because there are fantasy books of his that influenced other people. So I mean, things like The King of Elfland's Daughter I mean, definitely has a life outside that interest of Cthulhu Mythos mm. fans. But relatively niche. I mean, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but uh, relatively. It's, it's relatively niche, but still much more than Chambers. Much more than Chambers, you know, yeah. If, if it weren't for the Lovecraft connection, I, I don't think anyone would talk about Chambers now. So I was inspired because I went to the uh, the Tolkien exhibition. There was a letter from R.W. Chambers to Tolkien hmm. in the, I think I'm going to say like 20s or 30s. I think around the time he was working on The Hobbit, maybe. Talking to Tolkien about a poem he'd written or was working on called The Fall of Arthur about King Arthur and Tolkien was going back to historical sources. I went and, and looked it up and yeah, there's the letter in the book. But it's a different R.W. Chambers. <laughs> he was born within about 10 years of this Robert W. Chambers and died about 10 years after, before or after him as well. Um, but it's somebody else. It's like a, a, an English <laughs> uh, kind of don at one of the universities Tolkien was uh, conversing with, but also called R.W. Chambers. I had the exact same moment when I went into the... Uh, there's a second-hand bookstore in Wolverton that's coincidentally just across the way from where Concrete Cow's held. I went in there and I regularly have a look through their history section looking for any of the collections of myths, folklore, legends that occasionally show up in there. And I did a double take when I saw there was a book by Robert W. Chambers up on the shelf. I thought, wow, okay. Of course, pulled it down to have a look at it. It was a historical text of some kind. But then reading through it, go, oh, yeah, this is definitely not the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a curious coincidence. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Have either of you two ever felt inspired to read any Chambers beyond the King in the Yellow stories? been tempted but it's mainly because i'm such a slow reader and have very little time that it's just not happened yet but i have got things like the yellow sign and other stories that detail the the complete weird fiction of chambers that chaosium put out a few years back and is that more than that's in the king in yellow it's oh, yes. that and everything else right yeah it's all the weird fiction from the maker of moons and the mystery of choice and the tracer of lost persons and in search of the unknown and right all sorts of other things uh, so yeah it's quite a comprehensive compendium he did write some sort of science fiction and, and weird stuff beyond that that's not collected in that book so it's not absolutely comprehensive but it's pretty good hmm now you mentioned yeah, yeah. Tracer of Lost Persons. That was another break into a different type of media, wasn't it, when it got adapted? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a radio series for a long time. That ran for the best part of 20 years, from 1937 to 1955, and was hugely successful. Mm. So, again, yeah, that's, that's another example of how, you know, up until the middle of the 20th century, Chambers was fantastically popular and then gone. Well, with the film as and radio, where they're adapted for screen or, or audio, how famous does the author actually get sometimes the name is up there and sometimes it's buried and the, and the listeners or watchers don't really know who wrote this thing so yeah. you know, i'm just kind of questioning actually how much his name was actually known to the listenership or, or the watchers i think given the popularity of his books it probably was and they probably used his name a bit in, in the marketing, in the, in the marketing. Mm. but there's also the chicken and egg side of things that unless his work was popular the people making the films and the radio series and so on wouldn't have drawn upon it you know, probably not to the same extent. Mm. Even if it didn't boost his popularity, I think it's certainly an indicator of it. And now we move on to look at the King in Yellow story collection. One thing we'll, we'll dig into here when we talk about the book is how much 
has been made out of so little here. What we consider to be the Carcosa mythos comes from very few stories and very few references within those stories. And probably the single biggest component of all this is actually a brief poem in the introduction. Along the shore the cloud waves break, the twin suns sink behind the lake, the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise, and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing, where flap the tatters of the king, must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead, die thou unsung as tears unshed, shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. That's Casilda's song in The King in Yellow, Act 1, Scene 2. And that is a fantastically atmospheric bit of writing. I mean, it doesn't tell you very much concrete, but by God, does it paint a picture. I'm kind of intrigued to know, and I don't think we actually have verification of this, whether he wrote that poem before writing the King in Yellow stories, you know, the other stories, and the kind of order in which he wrote these stories in this collection. Yeah, this is really interesting to me. The fact that, given his popularity, how little we really know about a lot of Chambers's work and methods, and there are some fairly broad biographical details but yeah, I don't know if it was that he was quite a private person or that sources from the time haven't really survived. But I mean, most of the essays that I've read by people like S.T. Joshi and, and Ken Haidt and uh, Robert Price, they give a fair amount of information about Chambers, but compared to the sheer wealth of information that's available about Lovecraft and how he wrote things and what he was drawing upon and the order in which he wrote things and so on, I think it shows how much we rely on Lovecraft's copious correspondence as a way of understanding what was going on beneath the surface and that stuff just isn't there with chambers so the first edition was published by f tennyson neely in 1895 it sold well and went through four printings in the first year alone yeah, I didn't realise until last night when I was reading Lynn Carter's Spawn of Cthulhu that Neely was primarily a publisher of romances. This is maybe not quite the same, but almost like The King in Yellow was put out by Mills and Boone. <laughs> <laughs> now there's an image. <laughs> <laughs> this little innocuous text sat in a row of all pink spines and then suddenly horror. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least a different kind of horror. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> the book consists of nine stories and one montage of fragments of short prose poems. That is definitely the one that sticks out as the sore thumb in terms of the <laughs> construction of all the rest. While there are some shared elements between the first four stories, there is little continuity in the book as a whole. This is one thing I found when having a look on my bookshelf. As I've said before, The King in Yellow is probably my favourite part of the kind of the wider Cthulhu mythos. So being the bibliophile that I am, always in hunt of my next major charge. There was an edition of The King in Yellow put out by Pushkin Press in 2017. And unlike any other collection that I've got where it reprints the whole thing, Pushkin Press only has the first four stories in it. It only has The Repair of Reputations, The Mask, In the Court of the Dragon and The, the Yellow Sign. It ditches the rest entirely. 
I mean, that's interesting. And it's also interesting that In the Court of the Dragons survives now as part of The King in Yellow, because that was in the first few editions, and apparently it got cut out uh, from reprints because it was considered to be somewhat blasphemous in the way it depicted the church. And, uh, you know, it it became a bit controversial. And so as a result, I think for a long time, the editions of The King in Yellow that came out were just missing it. Most of the stories take place in Paris alongside two set in New York and one in Brittany. There are a number of recurring names, such as Jack and Sylvia, but little indication that they applied to the same characters in different stories. The first story in the collection, The Repairer of Reputations, this story revolves around one Hildred Castain, a delusional and rather unreliable narrator, believes that he is the heir to the dynasty of Carcosa. The story is set in a New York of 1920, there are certain differences, obviously being it's written in 1895, but it's a very different world that Chambers envisioned then, and tells of Castaigne's rivalry with his cousin for the love of Constance Hallberg and his strange friendship with Mr. Wilde, the repairer of reputations. That's a, a really interesting little thing there, because, you know, in 1895, he's writing this, and he's pretty much, I guess, envisioned almost what modern-day public relations firms and spin doctors do, in that he's got this weird little man with agents all over the world who basically try to spin narratives or create narratives around people whose reputations have been tainted. Sometimes deservedly so, sometimes not. Castaigne has read The King in Yellow and the derived work The Imperial Dynasty of America, and plans to crown himself king, sending the yellow sign across the land. Well, there's a criminal mastermind plan, really, from a madman. <laughs> well, except in this, the yellow sign is depicted as a sort of symbol of authority, rather than, you know, something that drives men mad. We'll, we'll get into that, I think, in more detail in a subsequent episode when we talk about the yellow sign. But, yeah, as you touched upon, this is a weird story, in that, yeah, it was written in 1895, it's set in 1920, but it's told from the point of view of this highly delusional narrator who is describing this world with all sorts of strange elements like public suicide chambers. Lethal chambers, woohoo! Yeah. Mm. You, you come away from it thinking, you know, how much of this is true? How much of this is his delusion? You know, has Chambers deliberately created this alternate history here, or the, rather this future history? Or is he trying to tell us that this is what Castaigne believes, but the rest of the world is actually still very much in 1895? And of course, he creates this other book, this other core text of the uh, the Carcosa mythos here, the Imperial Dynasty of America, which basically links the dynasty of Carcosa to people who exist in the real world of New York. So, you know, it's the first hint, I suppose, of some bleed over between this imaginary world and the world in which the characters in the book, The King in Yellow, inhabit. Uh, But again, it may just be delusion. There's certain bits of it as well that kind of strike me almost as being the late Victorian equivalent of what we would now call dystopian future writing. The opening a few pages of the story go into detail of the kind of horrific stuff that the US government's been up to. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, depending on what Chambers' politics were, he may not have been seeing that as dystopian. So you've got things like the US solving all its problems by... Uh, not, not allowing foreign-born Jews into the country. Yes, yeah, and, and, like and cr- creating a separate uh, homeland for freed slaves. Mm. Basically creating what, in modern parlance, would be a white ethnostate. We've certainly got another link with Lovecraft here, as Chambers seems to be a bit of a racist. 
in you know the anti-semitism and so on certainly there is you know a lot of that in some of his other weird fiction mm. as well the slayer of souls a novel of his from some time later which is very sort of anti-asian anti-chinese in a similar kind of way as that sax roma was I mean, you know quite toe-curlingly so we've then got the mask another story uh, a mix of romance art and weird science while it references the king in yellow the play does not play a major role the focus is on a love triangle in the art world of the 1890s, Paris, complicated by the creation of a chemical that turns living matter into marble sculptures. I mean, I thought very much of your scenario, A Message of Art, in, in Nameless Horrors, which mm-hmm. is about a, a sculpture. And were you influenced by this story for that? Because it seemed to very much play on the same setting and the same yeah. world. Partially, but not entirely. Um, I mean, obviously you took it in a very different direction, but... Yeah, quite, quite a different one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the thing that gets me with this story in particular, probably why it wasn't so much of a massive inspiration, um, was more um, the ending reminded me of but quite a lot of the feeling we got when we looked at The Shadow Out of Time. Just, yes, we know what the bloody twist is going to be. Stop giving more and more clues. We get it. But, but it's interesting. There was that uh, annotated edition that came out a little while back the Ken Height annotated, and he makes reference in it to Brian Stableford's essay on the subject, where he speculates that that ending might be, you know, similar to, you know, in the repair of reputations, the delusions of an unreliable narrator. Maybe this is what he's wishing to happen. Yeah, that feeling definitely rings true. But in terms of the king and yellow elements in this story, they're minimal. I mean, they basically come down to three paragraphs. At one point, the protagonist picks up a copy of the king and yellow off a shelf while he's waiting for something to happen, flicks through it, and is troubled by what he reads. Later, when he gets some really horrifying news, his mind sort of snaps a bit, and he starts seeing things through the lens of some of the images in the play. But that, that's really about it. And from there, we move on to In the Court of the Dragon. This, at first glance, is a fairly slight tale. It's it's the shortest out of the bunch. His protagonist is attending church, and he's finding the organist there a bit disquieting. The way he's playing, the music is discordant and jarring. And when the organist moves through the church later, the protagonist catches sight of him, and the protagonist mentions in passing that he hadn't been sleeping well anyway because he'd read The King in Yellow recently, and starts likening the paleness of the man's face to the pallid mask and... And then it turns into this weird chase through the streets of Paris. As the protagonist is frightened of this organist, thinks that he bears him ill will, and just tries to flee. And it leads up to an end where, again, whether there's any actual reality within the story to this, or whether this is just the delusions of the protagonist, where the organist is pretty much becomes the king in yellow there to impose some horrific revenge upon him for apparently perhaps killing the man who the organist resembles i certainly thought it was another strongly king in yellow story this one in the court of the dragon in that we see the play the king in yellow as a vector for insanity and madness played out in a different way but still retaining that core aspect yeah in a lot of ways it's it's almost a classic gothic ghost story a, a revenge ghost story but by adding that layer of the king and yellow onto it it becomes something far weirder and the closing paragraphs of it where the protagonist feels like he's being drawn into carcosa and confronting the king and it is a, a terrible thing to be to fall into the hands of the living god 
it becomes something really quite chilling. Mm. As I say, the last line in particular is one of my favourites in, in the whole collection. Well, you, you know where that comes from, don't you? It's from the Bible. From the Old Testament, from mm. Hebrews. Uh, yeah, I prefer the translation that's in the King James Bible, which is, you know, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then we move on to the yellow sign. As we said earlier, we are going to be looking at this in more detail in a subsequent episode. But this is the last of the core Carcosa mythos tales. With Doom falling upon an artist and his model in New York City, it's pretty nice. Mm. There's lots of material there, and it's also probably the most adapted of the stories, as again we'll probably cover later. Then there are six more stories in the collection, which, as we've said, don't play around the King in Yellow. There's the Demoiselle Dies, a supernatural romance set in Brittany in which an American man, as we've said before, an American <laughs> man off in the wilds, uh, becomes lost in the countryside and is rescued by the eponymous Demoiselle. While it is described as a ghost story, it is almost science fiction. It's, I don't know, it's fairly cliched. He meets this woman in the wilds and then the big... Spoiler is that at the end there's a gravestone and it all happened. Except it isn't necessarily that. I mean, he does seem to almost go back to, you know, 16th century mm. Brittany. It's less that he's encountering the ghosts of all these and more that he's fallen backward through time. Oh, yeah, certainly. He's kind of gone back through time, but then we get the gravestone at the end as yeah. kind of a... I, and Almost you talk a, about it being cliched. I mean, remember, this was published in 1895. There, okay, there, so maybe it's set in the mould for the cliché. Yeah. Yeah. So don't forget there's that sudden and inexplicable I love you moment that appears. <laughs> Which is all the way through Chambers's fiction. I mean, it seems like in every other story, yes, there is some American artist wandering around, bumps into this teenage French girl, and within you know 30 seconds of meeting her, he's proclaiming love. <laughs> and they are together forever, or, or, or not in this case. Oh. Although don't forget that there is a wonderful pun that I discovered after reading the Wikipedia <laughs> entry for this. Her name, the uh, demoiselle, is Jean. So, Jean Dis. Jean Dis. Yellow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the name Is, apparently that comes from Breton mythology, that it's the name of a lost city, uh, supposedly a city by the coast that you know, just disappeared. I guess almost that whole lost city aspect of it perhaps almost ties in with Carcosa, but there is certainly a character called Haster in this story, who looks after the Demoiselle's hawks. But there's no necessarily supernatural or Carcosan element to him. Then we move on to the oddity, the uh, the one that really doesn't fit the mould. The Prophet's Paradise. While they don't mention any specific elements of the Carcosa mythos, this collection of weird and fragmentary prose poems shares some similar atmosphere and imagery. And you've got reference to the likes of truth in there. You've got a reference that you could abstract to the pallid mask with a kind of discussion between a clown, his mirror, and death, who has the whiter face. And another aspect of it I found interesting is that in some pieces, particularly in Call of Cthulhu, I do sometimes see perhaps a bit of conflation between the imagery of the King in Yellow and the Commedia dell'arte, which we discussed a little bit in our episode on The Last Feast of Harlequin. Mm -hmm. And you've got these two characters from the Commedia dell'arte which appear in this story. You've got the clown and you've got Piero. I don't know whether this is perhaps one of the reasons why some people, when they're trying to imagine Carcosa, imagine it as sort of medieval uh, Venice. And you know, if they're picturing some of the supporting characters, they perhaps picture them through the lens of the Commedia dell'arte. Because there's certainly nothing in the rest of the stories to imply that. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's the Prophet's Paradise. We've oh, done no, that. that was the one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we just done that one. I, I, my mind kind of numbed it out. I kind of lost the will to read any of the rest of the book. That, that's pretty much what I felt yeah. when I got to that point. <laughs> oh, Christ. I actually quite like it. Well, it's good someone does. Then there's The Street of the Four Winds. While not exactly a weird tale, this story of an American artist in Paris <laughs> taking in a stray cat leads to a macabre ending. It could almost be seen as a prequel to the yellow sign explaining who Sylvia was. I bet that cat was from Old Thar, wasn't it? <laughs> well, the cat plays a pretty major part in uh, a pair of reputations as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, pretty yeah. Significant Kills cat. wild. Yes, the, the, this one is a bit more friendly. Aww. And I quite like this story. I mean, it's got an atmosphere of building doom. And I think by the time you get to the ending, yeah, it's uh, quite effective. And onwards to The Street of the First Shell, another story about an American artist in Paris, although this time set in 1870 during the Paris siege of the Franco-Prussian War. It's a tense tale revolving around a German spy with plenty of drama, action and betrayal. When I tried listening to the audiobook of The King in Yellow, all seven plus hours of it, I must admit, I fell asleep after In the Court of the Dragon, but I remember waking up halfway through what I think could only be this story. And there's a definite tone shift. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's almost like spy thriller. In, it is, in yeah. yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's some real action scenes in it uh, during the siege, during the battle that breaks out there. There's a lot of stuff about a German spy, some drama about you know the relationship between the protagonist and his wife and her relationship to the German spy. I think it's really quite a good story. It has no weird elements in it. I mean, it is a drama adventure romance. And apparently it does share some of the characters with In the Quarter, you know, his first novel. But not having read that, I really don't know how the two relate. Then we have The Street of Our Lady of the Fields and Rue Barret, two quite similar romantic tales of American art students in Paris sharing a few of the same characters. He seems to like continuity between his work, as you yeah. just mentioned, Scott, about a connection between his earlier work and some of the characters in this book. Yeah, I think, though, the, these two stories, out of all of the stories in the books, are, are, are probably the most forgettable. But yeah, again, I don't think they're terrible stories. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly entertained while reading them. But they are, you know, romances. Where I think they're perhaps useful or interesting is if you're inspired by this book to run a scenario that's set in fantasy at Paris, you know, in the art scene. I think it provides a lot of good description and raw material and characters you can draw on. And so it could be quite inspirational in that respect. If you're looking for weird fiction, no. I mean, these, these are primary examples of why The King in Yellow was published by a romance publisher. I mean, I've just so, offered my opinion. I mean, what do you two make of the entire collection? I think it kind of stops after the yellow sign, personally, that it's so tonally different. And it just seems weird to me why have the connecting thread only between the first four stories. Yeah, I think there's some weird elements in some of the other stories. But if you're looking for King in Yellow, Carcosa, myths, then the first four stories are the ones to look at, most definitely. Yeah, I, I'd say the the entire book is worth reading. Um, I don't think there's a bad story in it. I think the last two are probably the weakest. But as long as you set your expectations... I mean, I, I was chatting with one of our listeners on Discord recently who picked up the book, didn't know anything about it, and started reading it under the impression that it was a novel. And it was obviously thrown fairly early because what he thought were chapters turned out to be different stories. 
But yes, I think if you throw any idea of continuity out and, and just look at it as an interesting read, then, yeah, it's not a bad book. Now let's take a look at the possible inspirations for The King in Yellow. Well, like we've seen, Lovecraft was quite happy stealing stuff from other people. Chambers was probably more of a thief. <laughs> he really <laughs> stole the shit out of some stuff. Well, he stole a few names, right? But much, much more than that. Well, I think there's, I think there's all sorts of elements that we can look at as coming from or being very heavily inspired by certain things. But then again, I mean, every writer does that. I mean, we do that. I mean, we write stuff that draws from Lovecraft and from mm. every other Lovecraftian writer all the That's time. That's kind of our remit as we're writing yes. scenarios based on their works. But but even then, for example, Dockside Dogs. I mean, you drew heavily there from Reservoir Dogs mm. and were heavily inspired by that. We are, in a lot of respects, the sum of our influences. Oh, certainly. Yeah. But it's just perhaps a bit more obvious with Chambers sometimes. He looted the names wholesale. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's kind of curious how he did that. So what we're talking about is uh, a few stories by Ambrose Bierce. Haita, uh-huh. the shepherd. A story about the fragile nature of happiness, introducing Hasta as a benevolent god of the shepherds. And it's something that this shepherd boy kind of prays to. And, and another story, an inhabitant of Carcosa. This one's more of a ghost story in which the narrator attempts to find his way home from the lost city of Carcosa. Well, it's not even really a lost no, city. To, it's to just, the, no, he's, he's just trying, he's to, trying find, to find his way there, isn't he? Yeah, right. he's trying to find... He, I mean, he comes from Carcosa originally and he somehow got lost in the wilderness and he's trying to find his way back. But he's finding everything's in ruins and nothing's as he remembers it. And, and yeah, you know, it transpires that he died some time back, that he's this lost spirit just wandering the land, never able to go home. Was he an American artist in Paris? <laughs> <laughs> wandering around and can't find his way and finds a whole load of ruins? It's familiar? <laughs> And quite a few of these ways of delivering these stories it reminds me of Dickens's, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, Christmas Carol, you know, where he's taken off by ghosts and shown the future or the past and, and you know, he sees his own gravestone mm. and, and things like this. So it seems to be a sort of the mode of storytelling that was common around that period. I mean, I'm not sure when Dickens wrote that, but it's kind of late 1800s. Oh, oh yeah, it would have been some 20 or 30 years before then, I yeah. think. Yeah, the idea from Hay to the Shepherd, thinking of Hasta as a good figure. That just sounds wrong. <laughs> and there are other elements that are drawn from Beers as well. Harley, the name of the Lake of Harley, which we'll come to soon, is drawn from the name of someone who provides an epigram to both uh, an inhabitant of Carcosa and to another Beer story, The Death of Halpin Fraser. And an inhabitant of Carcosa also contains the line, Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds Aldebaran and the Hyades. And, of course, these become repeated motifs in the King and Yellow stories as well. So, obviously, where Chambers got it from. Can't hear them singing, but, yeah. Beers may have also been inspired to create the name Carcosa by the poem Carcassonne by Gustav Naudad. Uh, close enough, I guess. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, about a man whose fondest wish is to visit the French city of Carcassonne and sets out to do so all in vain. He could have just picked up the board game. He would have had a much quicker trip. Well, I, that's interesting because when I was reading this, I thought of the board game Carcassonne and I thought, oh, yeah, someone should do a version of that where you're building the city of Carcosa instead of Carcassonne. And looked on Board Game Geek and, and someone only bloody has. Yeah, there was kickstarted a couple of years back, if I remember right. <laughs> Another inspiration is perhaps Oscar Wilde's 1890 novel, 
and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. In the story, Dorian Gray is morally corrupted by a book. Wilde's description of it could well be The King in Yellow, of course he doesn't tell us that. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment, and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that he had dimly dreamed were suddenly made real to him. Things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. There were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids, and as subtle in colour. The life of the senses was described in the terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad, as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming, that made him unconscious of the falling day and the creeping shadows. That is a sentence worthy as long as Lovecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Breathe! But but there are all sorts of elements there that we really see in the King and Yellow stories. That description of it as being a poisonous book, the fact that it's described as the Yellow Book, that whole thing about the reverie, the dreamlike state that reading it produces, these are all things that we see in Chambers. And if you do want a good book to read, then read A Picture of Dorian Gray, because that is a marvellous read. It and really is, yeah. It really is, yeah. And although Wilde never actually names the book, some scholars have suggested that it might be Hoisman's decadent novel of 1884, Arebo, which is known in English, I believe, as Against Nature. And this was perhaps an influence on the artist and friend of uh, Wilde, Aubrey Beardsley, who took the name The Yellow Book from Wilde's novel and used it as a title of his literary journal. This was a journal that was published between 1894 and 1897, This makes it doubtful that it was an influence on The King in Yellow, but it was a cornerstone of the British decadent movement, and there was a whole collection of artists around London and Paris who was kind of central to the Yellow 90s and the the kind of decadent art movement of the period. Around the same time, in 1892, Charlotte Perkins Gilman published The Yellow Wallpaper. In her story, a woman is imprisoned within a room with yellow wallpaper as a rest cure for nervous illness. The colour of the wallpaper is a recurring motif as she descends into madness. That is probably one of the most boring titles I can think of for a book, <laughs> but as an interesting premise. It's a yeah, fantastic it's a story. story. Yeah, yeah and, and really creepy because, uh, you know, th- there are patterns in the wallpaper as well. And, and she sort of sees herself in the patterns and then imagines that she's trapped within the world, this yellow world of the yellow wallpaper. And... I I can almost see that as being an inspiration, not necessarily for Chambers himself, but the way that some people have seen Carcosa. Loire au Masque d'Or, or The King in the Golden Mask, is an 1893 story by Marcel Schwab. It tells of a king whose courtiers are always masked, as is he. When a blind beggar who wears no mask enters the court... He brings doom to the court. Well, that's almost like the king in yellow, right? Ah, exactly. Ah, but, says Matt. 
Is that actually described in any of the Chambers stories? Ah, good question. Yeah. Or is that picked upon later? Yeah, Yeah. I think uh, we'll we'll, we'll dig into this probably a lot more in the next episode, where we'll break down what the individual elements of the Carcosa mythos are and look at what Chambers did with them and compare that to what we assume about them. Yeah, it's a minefield trying to pick out the bits that are Chambers and the bits that other people have added on afterwards and particularly when they're adding them on afterwards based on something that came before Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, that really is i think probably the only part that you could really pin down as being that definitely could have influenced was again another quote section from the play where camilla's talking with the stranger saying you searched a mask we've all laid aside disguise but you and then he says i wear no mask that probably is the only bit you could pin it down to. But all these references to turning up and and not wearing a mask and being assumed to be wearing a mask, there's references and plays from the early uh, 1800s that echo this. It apparently seemed to be quite a common theme, or at least cropped up in a few different works. There's also Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mask of the Red Death, which has echoes of what we see in the fragments of the play Chambers shares with us. The Red Death and the King in Yellow are perhaps similar figures. What do you make of this, Matt? Because I know you're a big fan of the story. How much of what, when people think about the play The King in Yellow and what's going on there, how much do you think that they're actually conflating that with The Mask of the Red Death? Massively so. You've got a lot of imagery between The King in Yellow as described as this tatters of the king, you can assign that to the figure of the Red Death, or rather the person that gets into Prospero's castle that is infected with the Red Death and then starts to spread it amongst the rest of the revellers there, purely because of the attire. Both are described as a colour, yellow, red. So there's a lot of interchangeable motifs, a lot of interchangeable themes that you could use to wrap those two together very seamlessly. Personally, I still see them as two very different things, but you can see that one is almost a love letter to the other. But if you were portraying the events of the play in a scenario that you were running, how much would you be tempted to draw upon The Mask of the Red Death just for, at the risk of making a pun, colour? <laughs> um, yeah, I th- there's a lot to be pulled from it, because you've got this stranger, in inverted commas, that gets into a castle or fortified city that has previously not been seen that is under siege. In Red Death, you've got the plague outside. In the versions of the kind of expanded Hasta Mythos, you've got the potentially it's at siege from the rival nation of Alar, depending on whether you're looking at Yittel or Carcosa. Again, there's this imagery of siege that it's walled off from the rest of the world for one reason or another, but someone is able to get in. And that entry is what sparks the downfall of the whole society that you've got there. Either them all being infected with the um, with the Red Death in Poe or whatever happens in The King in Yellow that means they all don the mask or they all die or however you want to interpret what the hell happens to them. But again, you're referring to events like, you know, a siege and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that none of that comes from Chambers. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. But again, it's you're, you're kind of spinning off by yeah. saying if you want to draw in that one tattered image of a figure, do you think, well, that's from The Mask of the Red Death. So I'll nip another bit from that story and then drag that in, but I'll recast it in a different way. And why yellow? We've talked about a lot of things, but just generally why yellow? It was obviously an in-vogue colour of the period. I mean, it sort of features on the covers of risque romance novels of the time. Yeah, It was kind of a symbol of decadence. It's used on this yellow book. It's used on uh, Oscar Wilde's book in the story. What does the colour yellow signify? I mean, it's also people link it with jaundice. 
It's linked with pus and disease. And, and syphilis, yeah. yeah. It, it's a colour that almost, to me, represents infection, that it represents unwholesomeness, sickness, and something that, on the surface, is quite a nice, happy, bright colour, but has a lot of connotations that suddenly put it in a very different light. Primarily, it seems to be moral sickness, almost. Well, I mean, yeah. that, that, that's almost like the connection with syphilis. If you're looking at a time where sexual mores were very restrictive, but at the same time there was this decadent movement that was breaking out there, that associating it with, with a sexually transmitted disease with sickness that way, you know, seems you know, almost like a, a very obvious thing. I think it's one of these things, to use the original meaning of the word, a meme, where, you know, this idea, this image gets into people's head and it spreads and, you know, other people build upon it and take it in different directions. I think it was just a meme that spread through the, the 1890s. And one thing that just occurred to me, Paul, you mentioned the yellow cover of French romances or, you know, French racy books at the time. That sort of yellow cover thing as an idea became a thing again in Italy in the 20th century, wow. where you know, rather lurid thrillers ended up having yellow covers. And that colour ended up giving its name to a film genre, uh, giallo, mm. which you know, then birthed the modern slasher movie. These sort of sexually risque, violent, nasty thrillers that started out with Mario Bava and then Dario Argento and so on, trace their inspiration back through yellow. It did make me wonder whether perhaps there is, you know, some kind of scenario that could be written out of that. The King and Giallo, you know, conflating you mm. know, these, these Giallo films with the imagery of the King and Yellow. And we'll be returning to these themes in our next show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we shall drag ourselves out from Carcosa in the Lake of Harley back into the real world where the rest of you dwell. And while we're here, we shall take the opportunity to thank some of you. Well, actually, we want to thank all of you, but particularly those of you who have given us money via Patreon. Um, and we once again have a few new people to thank. We sure do. Kicking off at the $1 level, we have a thank you to Kirk Riley. Thanks very much, Kirk. Well, thank you very much, Kirk. Indeed. Thank you, Kirk. Ah, a familiar name here. Thank you very much to William Mize. Well, thank you, Bill. Indeed, thank you, Bill. Thank you very much, Bill. And also our thanks go out to Simon Tonkis. So, thank you very much, Simon. Yes, thank you very much, Simon. I think my wife is descended from Tonkises. I don't know if, from, if he's from the Yorkshire area at all, but, uh, yeah. Well, OK. Well, thank you very much, Simon. And, uh, yes, <laughs> we'll see whether you're part of the extended Fricker family then. It's a small world after all. And then on to the $3 level, we have a thank you and cheers to Eduardo Lorente. Thank you very much and cheers, Eduardo. Hey, hey, cheers, Eduardo. And thank you very much and cheers to Grant Dowell. Hey, cheers, Grant. Cheers, Grant. And now we move up to the $5 level. You know what that means, Matt? Yep, there's some victims are coming. <laughs> right. Uh, our first victim today, who will have their praise uttered in song. Yeah, that's a piece of false advertising right there. Um, <laughs> is Wayne Stubblefield. So, thank you very much, Wayne. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Wayne, and rejoice! Death and the awful abode of lost souls. With a new week that's long ago had sent him, had changed the black swan rising! 
But Wayne, we've all laid aside disguise but you. And our second backer at the $5 level is Anthony Imes. So thank you very much, Anthony. Well, thank you, Anthony. And uh, yes, we hope this does things to you. (laughs) Brace yourself, Anthony. And hope you like it. On social media. Thankfully, we won't have to call upon the services of Mr. Wilde to repair reputations, but people have indeed been talking about us out there on that wild, wide web. A new listener, in fact, called Peter Kenny got in touch via email, and he says, I've just found your podcast and have fallen on it like an anemic vampire. That is a fantastic image. <laughs> I just love that line. <laughs> love how you devote such time and really explore a story. My rekindled love of horror was triggered by reading most of Robert Aikman's stories last year, and I am now wading through the cloying weirdness of Thomas Ligotti. Having just read The Last Feast of the Harlequin, I googled it to discover your podcast on that story and realised I wasn't alone in liking Ligotti's work. H.P. Lovecraft has always been a blank spot in my reading, but now I'm listening to your Dunwich Horror episodes, and it's showing me the error of my ways. As a teenager reading horror on fresh vellum, I read lots of Clark Ashton Smith, is he a mere footnote to Lovecraft? Hell no! I love I love Smith. Read more of him. Well, hang on. Isn't fresh vellum like sheepskin? Uh, I mean, so, it's just but, a man of quality. So, so, so you're, you're, you're ripping the living skin off a sheep and then reading stories that are inscribed and perhaps the blood. In no yeah. way is that a bad idea. Oh, dear. <laughs> I read lots of Clark Ashton Smith, who forced me to consult my dictionary every other page. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. I'm learning lots from listening to you. P.S. I'm not a gamer, but this doesn't seem to matter. Oh, I'm surprised by that last note. We did talk about gaming quite a lot, but I'm pleased to hear that you're enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've speculated about a few times, whether there are many non-gamers who listen to the podcast. If you're not a gamer, if you listen to the podcast for other strange reasons, we'd love to hear about it because uh, we've obviously always focused on the gaming aspect of it. But, you know, it's just interesting to learn how universal the other bits of the podcast are. And we've had some feedback about our third Dunwich Horror episode, or the Dunch Horror, as it may now be known <laughs> ever after. First from Frank Delventhal on G+. I would have taken the elephant gun just to have something to lean on. Then I'd hope that the powder of Ibn Ghazi makes the thing more than just visible as it crosses over land. The thing would knock down power cables. While I jumped on the back of the thing, Professor Armitage and the other colleagues would throw me the downed cables so I can strangle the sucker to the oblivion where it belongs. I hope the solution would be over the top enough for Pulp Cthulhu. Yes, Frank, I think it may be over the top <laughs> enough for Pulp Cthulhu. Maybe too over the top even for Pulp Cthulhu, but no, nothing is that over no, the top. No, no, no. <laughs> no that, that is entirely fitting with the Pulp Cthulhu games I've run. And I now want to read that version of the Dunwich Horror. Mm. <laughs> 
Yeah. He, what, yeah. What's he doing through that through that telescope? Wow, it looks like he's strangling with his high-tension wire. <laughs> Look at the volts <laughs> running through that thing. <laughs> I think from now on, any Lovecraft story that we explore, we will now recast Frank as the hero of it and just see where it might go. And finally, Nerdron on Discord said, After the four-part epic episode string covering the Dunwich Horror, I changed the incoming text notification on my phone to the Whippoorwill sound. Thanks for the inspiration, folks. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Well, I I think that's an extremely dangerous thing to do, because, well, if they are little feathered psychopomps, I mean, each time you get a taste, that could be just eating a little bit of your soul until there's nothing but tatters left. And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about Robert W. Chambers and The King in Yellow? The King in Yellow, is, as of next year, is going to be 125 years since that book came out. It has seen a bit of a resurgence in interest in recent years, but I think pretty much in the growth of interest in Lovecraft since the 1970s to the present day, Chambers has been buoyed up by that as well. But why do you think it's persisted so long, the, the interest in this otherwise largely forgotten writer? Probably because it's just so damn weird and that there's not really anything else that has the same kind of feel to it. You've got other books in the mythos that they drive you mad when you read them. But this is a particular kind of madness and it's that it hints so much about what's inside but then obviously the reader can draw their own conclusion as to what the play's about, what kind of truth it reveals. It's so tantalisingly dark and mysterious and that's a really interesting point this may be something we expand on in our episode on Haster in the Cthulhu Mythos later but it strikes me that the representation of delusions and insanity in Call of Cthulhu possibly owes more to Chambers than it does to Lovecraft because Lovecraft's characters they suffer bouts of madness when they discover unpleasant truths about the universe and go into fugue states or bouts of horror they don't really tend to develop delusions. But delusion is a running theme through the King and Yellow stories. I don't know about you two, but it occurred to me as I was reading these stories or rereading them, how much the representation I put into my own games of delusions resembles Chambers rather than Lovecraft. Even down to the likes of prophetic dream or dreams being some harbinger of something bad that's going to happen to a character in a scenario or a short story. That kind of derives from the yellow sign. That kind of dream sequence would appear more in a Call of Cthulhu scenario than it would, I say, in a Lovecraft story. Mm. I think it's impossible to separate Robert W. Chambers and his creations, Those we take it as those four stories, those four short stories, with all the things that have come since. So separate those from... You know, the subsequent works and, and Lovecraft's references to it and the various other authors that have picked up on it and made adaptations and, and uh, interpretations. But if we just had those four stories and nobody else had picked up on it, would it be so popular now? I think almost certainly it wouldn't be anywhere near as popular because I think all these things have kept it alive and I wouldn't have gone to it if it weren't for the game Call of Cthulhu, I guess. But, but possibly I would because it's references in some of the media that we'll come to next show. But, yeah, they are four stories written, as you said, almost 125 years ago. Why are they so popular now? That's what I would put it down to, all the various things that have come since then. Yeah, I I think it is very much the conflation with the Cthulhu mythos that's that's kept them alive. But, yeah, it is also the other writers, as you say, who've built upon this and built upon the Carcosa mythos. And that, appropriately enough, is very much what our next episode is about. 
So until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes. Dot com. Mm-hmm.